And if you are able and willing, will you please stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 5, which is on page 84 of your pew Bibles. Leviticus 5, beginning in verse 14. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver, silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. And he shall make restitution for what he has done amiss in the holy thing and shall add a fifth to it, and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. If anyone sins doing any of the things by the Lord's, by the Lord's commandments ought not to have been done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is a guilt offering, and he has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has opposed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, if any, of all, if any of all these things that the people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he has t took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything done about which he is sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it. And give it to him to whom it belongs on the day he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, we are looking at the fifth and final of the offerings that the Lord established and governed for his people. These offerings were given so that his people might enjoy his presence. These offerings gave them access into his holiness. In Leviticus 1, we saw the burnt offering, or what we called the whole offering. When a faithful Israelite would bring it, they were saying to the Lord, as this offering is entirely consumed by the fire, so too I am holy, belonging to the Lord. In Leviticus 2, although we did not look at it, it was the grain offering or the gift offering. It was an offering given to bring sin to remembrance. In Leviticus 3, the peace offering or fellowship offering, which we looked at just last week. It focused on covenant fellowship with the Lord and with our neighbor. These three offerings were all voluntary offerings. If you notice, 
It was never commanded or it never gave an occasion why the worshiper would bring these offerings to the Lord. They were to bring these showing their faithfulness and their dedication to the God of Israel. And through these offerings, they enjoyed union and communion with their covenant king. However, we find a significant shift in Leviticus 4 through 7. As we saw in Leviticus 4, when we looked at the sin offering, or what we called the purification offering, this offering was not voluntary or optional. It was a mandatory offering because it dealt with the worshiper's sin. Their sin needed to be dealt with. Their sin, like our sin, is a really big deal. Their sin mattered. Because sin makes us unpure. But our God provided a remedy. God provided a cure by an act of mercy and grace. And he allowed his people to provide an offering so that they could come unto him. This is what we all need. A sacrifice to deal with our impurity that our sin causes. Because our sin is like the dust bowl dust. And just like Claire came this morning, covered in her sin, she received God's mercy and grace through baptism, and she was cleansed. She was purified by the blood of Christ. So here in Leviticus 5, 14 through 6, 7, the Lord directs Moses to instruct the people once again how to deal with their sin. This offering is called the guilt offering or the reparation offering. And it focuses once again on the curse of our sin. This time it focuses not on our uncleanliness, but our debt that we incur. Leviticus 5 and 6 reveals that our sin is serious. It is so serious that it is a breach of our fellowship with our covenant king and with our fellow citizens within the kingdom of God. The implications of our sin that this passage reveals is that we have a debt and it needs to be paid. So those, those are the two things that I want us to focus on. Sin's debt and sin's payment. Sin's debt. When I was in middle school, I remember finding out one time that I had a debt that needed to be paid and I didn't want to. At first, I denied it. I did what every middle school boy does. I blamed somebody else. It wasn't my fault. You should look into this person, right? I give up an, a sacrificial lamb. You see, I had intentionally run up my lunch bill in the school cafeteria. Does that sound familiar to anybody in our congregation? I didn't know how, I don't, I don't know how they take your lunch, your lunch money at school. But when I was in middle school, they, they took your money from your account by asking you the last four digits of your social security number. Well, mine only has two numbers, and I'm sure, I'm sure someone's just stealing from me. But unfortunately, they had not. I had run up a debt that I could not pay. I incurred guilt. Now, I've heard some stories of particular students whose lunch debts needed to be settled. 
And whether or not they knew it, the debt kept growing. Every time they went and purchased something, their accounts went into the red, just like mine did. And someone had to pay it. Well, in Leviticus 5, 14 through 19, we see something very similar. A debt has been incurred even though they don't know it. And this passage is a little different from the previous four offerings, as that this offering deals specifically with reparation. A reparation is the basic sense is righting a wrong. It's making restitution. It's repaying some, someone that owes someone that is due to them. And I know today a reparation can be a loaded term. But a reparation, we all have a sense and understanding that when someone is owed something, it must be paid, especially when it's to us. We understand when someone owes us something and when they must pay it. And so here in Leviticus, reparations carry a general sense of making amends for repairing a wrong, whether we meant to or not. And what the Lord says in verse 15 is, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally, just as we saw in Leviticus 4, if anyone sins in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish, out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. These holy things were things that belonged to the Lord, as you can read in Leviticus 22. And these things, these gifts, were things given to the Lord, set apart for his holy use. And what we think within this context is that what these holy things are, were the sacrifices given to the Lord. And that someone who was unholy, a common person, somehow took these sacrifices that were given to the priests for them to eat, and they took them, making them unholy. They took something that was set apart, and they made it common. I don't know if you've ever had someone break into your house or break into your car. But typically when something like that happens, how do we respond? I feel violated. Because our things are precious to us. When someone misuses our things, when they take our things, when they violate our things, we feel like we too have been violated. Well, the same is with these things of the Lord. These things that were set apart for him and his holy use that were designated for him he felt violated. It was a breach of faith, and that was a huge deal. A reparation or restitution had to be made. And this is what he says in verse 16. He shall also make restitutions for what he has done amiss in the holy things and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. So he must repay the thing that he took plus 20%. Once someone realized their guilt and received guilt's consequences, they were to repay 120% of what they took. The one sinned against, or the one they sinned against, must be repaid plus damages. We see the same thing in, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Yet this sin wasn't unintentional. 
This sin is outright sin against one's neighbor. They deceived their neighbor. They robbed from their neighbor. They oppressed their neighbor. They found something that belonged to their neighbor, but they kept it for themselves. They sinned against them, but you'll notice what the Lord says in verse 2. The Lord says, when you sin against them, you have also sinned against me. And what many scholars think is happening here is that an Israelite could pronounce their innocence by taking an oath or a vow in the Lord's name. Bill, I don't know how we planned this. Where is Bill? Well, I don't know how we planned this with Sunday school, but this, they were taking an unlawful vow. They were saying as a quick fix, oh, I swear I didn't do it, knowing fully where they had done it. But instead, they were to say, I swear on the name of the Lord. And so invoking the name of the Lord, breaking the second commandment and the ninth commandment, they were misusing the name of the Lord, which meant they were misusing the Lord himself. As my professor Jay Sklar says, to swear falsely was to use God's holy and majestic reputation to accomplish evil. And here, it was being used to commit evil against the neighbor. And the result? A debt. A debt was incurred. And therefore, a reparation was to be given and an offering was to be sacrificed. Like the other offerings, it was to be an animal without blemish. And although the hand-leaning right isn't specifically stated, it is probably also assumed here. And like the other offerings, the blood of the offering was thrown against the altar of the burnt offerings. These reparations and offerings were given because they had committed a treacherous act against the Lord. They committed a breach of faith. They defiled the Lord himself, whether, whether it was against his things or against his name. They committed a breach of faith. And this term, breach of faith, is used throughout the scriptures. It's also translated as turning away from the Lord. It's translated as rebelling against the Lord. It's translated in the book of Numbers as forsaking the Lord. It's even translated as committing adultery against the Lord. This breach of faith is an act of treason against the king. And so the sinner, the rebel, the adulterer had to make restitution. And although the text doesn't explicitly say it, what is implicit is that when someone goes to someone else, when they owe them something and pay them 120%, the implication is they confessed and repented of their sin. And if you notice the order, this must happen before the offering is brought before the Lord. Both in verse 16 and in chapter 6, 5 and 6, they make much restitution and then come to the Lord. Isn't it interesting that's the exact same thing we see in Matthew chapter 5? If anyone, if any, if so, if you offer your gift at the altar and therefore and they remember that your brothers has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
Before coming to the Lord, restitution with our neighbors must be made. If someone has something against you, the text says, not if you have something against them. If you realize that your neighbor has something against you, leave your gift at at the offering and then go and make restitution. Old Testament scholar Jeffrey Harper says, one cannot simply put sin against neighbor and sin against God into a mutual exclusive box. When we sin against our neighbor, we are also sinning against our great God. And brothers and sisters, your sin wants to hide. It never wants to be revealed. It never wants to be spoken out loud because then our sin becomes exposed. But what this passage reveals is that for Israel, just as for us, we have a tendency not to properly deal with our sin. We would rather suppress it or treat it like it's no big deal. But what this passage also reveals is that any sin, no matter how important, no matter how hidden, is wrong and abhorrent to a holy God. Our God hates sin because sin is anti-God. Because it defiles his creation. It doesn't enable his creation to work as it's supposed to work. Our sin affects and changes everything. What this passage is revealing to us, not only is how much our God hates our sin, but it's also calling us to also have this great aversion to our own sin. That we develop the same hatred for our sin that our God hates. And what this passage reveals is that an ideal Israelite, a faithful Israelite, would be one who quickly deals with sin, no matter how seemingly trivial it is. Brothers and sisters, there is no secret sin. You might fool your spouse. You might fool your friends. You might even fool yourself, but you will not fool the Lord. You are naked and exposed through the eyes of him to whom we must give account. If you've ever made bread, you might be like me, and I'm completely and utterly amazed every time something like bread grows. It's a palpable change. The way that yeast can make something so small become so big, sin has that same potential in our lives. Left unaddressed, it has a disturbing ability to penetrate, to infiltrate, to embed itself in the deepest recesses of our lives and cause utter chaos. When we sin, we breach our faith with our Lord. When we sin, we rebel against him. We forsake him. We commit spiritual adultery against our holy God. 
even when we think our sin doesn't matter, even when we think our sin doesn't hurt anyone. It does. It always does. I challenge you, if you need to confess your sin to somebody, confess your sin. Do not let it hide. Do not let the Spirit's conviction of your heart subside, because if you don't act, you won't act. And I also challenge you to this. If you continually confess your sin to the Lord, and you find yourself confessing and confessing and confessing and confessing, you might need to confess it to somebody else. Because our sin wants to hide. Our sin doesn't want to be exposed. Our sin always promises life, but it only always gives death. In this passage, what we also see is a direct correlation between the sin of God's people and the restitution of God's people when they come before the Lord. You might not be ready for that. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Ask the Lord to convict you of your sin, even sin you might not know of. Ask the Lord to give you strength to confess your sin to one another. And therefore, be restored as an image bearer, as his holy things that he can once again use for his holy use of bringing restoration to the entire world. Our sin has a debt. Our sin also has a payment. Our God truly forgives those who truly repent and confess their sin. These worshipers who brought this offering brought an offering because they sought restitution. They sought for their guilt to be forgiven. They sought to be restored. They had been convicted of their sin, whether it was against God's holy things, misusing his holy name, or sinning against their neighbor. They realized their sin. They realized what their sin, the debt their sin has caused, just like I realized my lunch debt had grown and grown and grown. They sought its remedy. They sought its payment. Just like the lunch lady told me that I had to pay for my sin, or I had to pay for my lunch, and I could not, where did I go? I ran to my parents. They paid my debt. It's in moments like this when we realize our sin, we must run to our God and our Father. This is what Jesus tells his disciples. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When the Lord convicts us of our sin, it is proper and right and faithful of us to confess our sins to one another. Brothers and sisters, our sin has incurred a debt to our holy God, but our God has not left us in our sin. He has paid for our sin through the blood of Christ. 
your debt has been paid. This is what it says three times in this verse, in verse 16, 18, and 6, 7. The priest shall make atonement before him, and he shall be forgiven. These are the words that you should hear this morning. You have been forgiven through the blood of Christ. You bear your sin no more. It has been nailed to the cross. Because our God loves you. This is what Paul says. And you who were dead in your trespasses and your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Israel longed for restitution. They had to bring this offering over and over and over, and this offering pointed them to the one that would come that they no longer had to provide over and over and over because our great high priest came and paid our debt once and for all. What they longed for, we have in Christ. What they were promised, we have received. Brothers and sisters, let us confess our sins. For we have been forgiven in Christ. He will never cast us out. He will never leave us. He is our God, and we are his people. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Let's pray.